Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory. We declare, Lord Jesus, with a unified voice, all of the redeemed that you have gathered here in this room today. We declare, worthy is your name. Hallowed be your name. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom might come and that your will would be done on this earth, in our hearts even, as it is in heaven. We pray that you might open our eyes to see, Lord, as I believe it was Elijah's servant that day, when the armies of the enemy had encamped around God's people, and the eyes of your servant were open for a brief moment, and there in the heavenlies, Lord, were the myriads, were the legions of heavenly warriors, angelic forces, standing ready at your command to enact and to exact your every will and decree at a moment's notice. We thank you that our God is powerful and mighty to save, that you have moved heaven and earth, overcome the effects of sin, Lord, the curse of death, of the law and sin that was against us and stood as an indictment over us. You have removed that, Lord, through the death of Christ our Lord. You have set us free to worship in spirit and in truth. You have set our feet on our rock, Jesus Christ. You have redeemed us, Lord. And if you can do these things, you can certainly, Lord, remove every obstacle that yet remains in our way of seeing your kingdom come and your will being done each day as we seek to honor and glorify you by living and speaking the message of the gospel to ourselves, to our families, and to whoever you take us to, Lord. I pray that this morning's service would be a tool in your hand to focus our hearts, affections, our minds' attention, Lord, and our willpower to do, Lord, that which you command and that which you Enable us too, Father, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that's dying in their sins and to see, Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit once again move heaven and earth to ransom a lost soul from certain destruction. We thank you for the power of the Spirit, for the power of your word. We pray that our hearts and our eyes, our minds will be opened and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading today as you speak to us through these pages. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity and privilege to spend time in His holy scriptures and to worship together, to gather as His beloved in the assembly, and to lift up and worship and praise the Lord's holy name. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 45. It's the second Sunday of the month, and so thus we pick up here in our Psalm a Month series. The title of this morning's message is Chief End of Marriage, the Chief End of Marriage. The title is borrowed, of course, from the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks the learner, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I would submit to you that the message of Psalm 45 is that this truth and this principle, this biblical summary 
of the goal for which man was created could also be applied more specifically to marriage. That is to say, the chief end of the marital union that God has instituted and designed is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And this is the message and meaning, ultimately, of marriage that we see in the Holy Scriptures. So I'd invite you to stand with me if you're able, with your Bible open to Psalm 45. And let's read together these verses. The title of this psalm is to the choir master according to lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. In verse 1 we read, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Verse 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you. Forever and ever, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Psalm 45 is singular in the Psalter, the group of psalms in the Word of God. In this book, Psalm 45 is the lone wedding song. And as such, it employs in its 17 verses with manifold poetic imagery It serves to underscore the transcendent meaning of marriage. That meaning can be perhaps summarized as the glory of God and also a description of our relationship with Him, enjoying that which our covenantal relationship with Him, based on the purchasing power of His blood, has been made secure for us, ultimately manifest in consummate glory. Similar to the Song of Solomon, the lyrical structure of Psalm 45 is theatrical. It's written almost like a play with a cast of characters. And this character-specific way it's organized has in its themes and pages and 
the ideas here, different parties. We have the bridegroom and the bride and others looking on. The bridal party, if you will, and indeed the nations, uttermost parts of the earth that are called to witness the testimony of this glorious spectacle. This structure is also rhapsodic, if you will. Rhapsody is a specific kind of music or song expressing deep emotion in rapturous overtures and melodic beauty. The author of Hebrews, as Mark read for us this morning in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, as we've covered at length in recent messages, the author of Hebrews cites verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45 as revelatory proof of the divinity and supremacy of Christ. Thus, canonically, that means within the pages of Scripture, emphasizing the Christ-centered focus of this worship and love song. In the Word of God, marriage, romance, if you will, and this love song and the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is absolutely, unequivocally Christ-centered. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards, for him, Psalm 45 Listen closely, this is very important. Psalm 45 established the exegetical framework for understanding the Christ-centered nature of the Song of Solomon. So in other words, Psalm 45 establishes what marriage is and what biblical love poetry means in its redemptive historical purpose and focus. Psalm 45 shows us how Christ relates to the love themes in the Scriptures. Now this framework for understanding this psalm and also the Song of Songs is extremely important, especially in our day and age. This is a lost connection that is crucial, especially today, because some preachers, it's been very popular in recent years, are want to strip mine texts like these for carnal purposes, appealing to the flesh rather than taking the biblical opportunity to proclaim Christ from passages of Scripture like the one we are reading today. There is a term that is common, and in fact I'm told a word study of Jonathan Edwards' own writings revealed that the adjective he most frequently employed in his writings as to the glorious truths of the Lord in Scripture is sweetness. The sweetness of Reformed theology, replete not only through Jonathan Edwards' works, but in all the Puritan authors, finds its source in the scriptural oases of lovely meditation on the ultimate meaning and the wellspring therein contained of love and marriage that we see in passages like the Song of Songs and Psalm 45. Today, it's February 8th, and this month is is famously known for Valentine's Day. Many churches will take the opportunity of, what do people expect to hear at this time of year? And then they'll do a theme or a series on love, of romance, and something along the lines of popular notions of romantic Valentine kind of love. I despise that sort of thing. I'll just be honest with you. I think the Word of God establishes for us the themes we ought to preach. The Word of God should not be conformed to some popularized liturgical calendar, as it were. 
The truths of God should not be squeezed and shaped into a cultural, carnal idea of what we value and love. Indeed, it should be the other way around. We should go to Psalm 45. We should go to the Song of Solomon to have our view of marriage, relationships, truth, love, romance, and love between a husband and wife corrected, shaped, convicted, transformed, directed, and informed rather than the other way around. Messages themed to appeal to our romantic notions based on the latest chick flick idea of the euphoria of human love have too often been the theme of sermons this time of year. And I feel like I'm saying this almost as a disqualifier in the providence of God. Psalm 45 happened to land on February for us this year. But nevertheless, let's take this opportunity to recognize that the Word of God establishes the truths and values that we ought to uphold in our own affections, in our lives, in our lifestyles. And there's no better place to turn for this in regard to human relationships and marriage and ultimately what they speak to our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Bridegroom. No better place to turn than Psalm 45. Let me give you a heading this morning to organize our text or our understanding of it. The heading is the singular wedding song of the Psalter commemorates. The singular wedding song, Psalm 45 of the Psalter commemorates the following. Number one, the preeminent worthiness of this covenantal occasion. Number two, the celebrated exploits of Christ the Groom. Number three, the surpassing character of Christ the Groom. Number four, the derived the derived virtue of His, that is Christ's bride, the church. And finally this morning, number five, the scope and influence of sovereign history. Let's begin with considering point number one this morning, the preeminent worthiness of this covenantal occasion. Historically, and as some background contextually, and perhaps culturally, it is likely that Psalm 45 accompanied many weddings at the time it was written and in the years succeeding, the years following its authorship. And most often, I imagine, the courts of a great king during his inauguration or the ceremony of his union with his bride might have come alive in music, song, and celebration, and the soundtrack being Psalm 45. There is a very tangible human and personal element to these words, yet it does not stop there. The truths of Psalm 45 transcend mere human relationships, as we've mentioned. And there is indeed an eternal theme, a transcendent theme of the love of God. Thus, if this psalm were to accompany a marriage, there would be a message proclaimed. This is a worthy occasion, this solemn union with vows, this covenant forged, before us witnesses today, as you imagine a marriage, this is a worthy occasion of celebration on account of this couple that stands before us today, let's say a king and his queen. But this is also a worthy occasion because this union here today that we witness speaks to a union beyond our imagination and beyond our immediate experience that incorporates God's sovereign purposes 
for all of history and can only be ultimately manifest and fulfilled and experienced in the coming Messiah, the bridegroom of bridegrooms, who will ransom and be united to his bride, the church, in a bond and a union that is ultimate, the ultimate picture of love and sacrifice and glorious union and service to each, in sacrificial service one to another, the picture of consummate relational glory. And so this ought to be the theme of a wedding. It's been my privilege because of the demographic largely represented in our church to do a number of weddings through the years. And this has been one of my favorite texts to go to. At least twice I've used Psalm 45 as a wedding text. And it is certainly a great one for that occasion. Because the preeminent worthiness of a marriage ceremony pictures in that union the covenantal occasion that reminds us of a relationship that transcends us. In verse 1 we read, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. This is a brief window of introduction where we hear the narrator of this psalm giving a personal anecdote in introducing what he is about to expound in matchless poetry. He says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme or a preeminently worthy occasion. I am bubbling over with inspiration, that is to say, because marriage and this picture of love that I'm about to display in this poetic form is absolutely saturated with the glories of the Messiah revealed to us. I address my verses, he says, to the king. In other words, a poem, a song, a canticle, if you will, that incorporates this kind of glorious uh, main idea and theme is one that's worthy of royalty. Indeed, it's worthy of the king of kings. Thoughts and meditations on God's purpose in marriage is a worshipful meditation worthy of incense, that is worthy incense to bring before the Lord in song, in poetry, in artistic rendering, and in a way that expresses in our meager capability some of the things that this occasion inspires. He says, my tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Thus we see in the introduction here and in this sort of window into, or in this sort of introductory window in narrate, in where we see the narrator's personal uh, joy and delight in actually writing this song, we find that he has employed his artistic faculties on a theme that, in, that is worthy of adoration and glorification, of adulation, of reverence. It really directs our attention and the attention of those who understand it for what God's purpose in marriage is and the related themes. It gives us a worthy song to sing to express our affections, our esteem, our admiration, our honor, our praise, our delight, a kind of enthrallment and a welling up of extolling and displaying the glory of God in song and praise and worship 
and even in the event of something like of some of an of a marriage because in this occasion it, there is a transcendent meaning of the revelatory power and purpose of the marriage covenant the worthiness of this covenantal occasion we find in this editorial editorial note at the beginning we also can see the preeminent worthiness of this covenantal occasion when we consider two palatial settings, if you will. Twice palaces are referred to to give us an idea of where would be a good place for a song like this to be sung and for the king and his bride to be honored and extolled. We see in verse 8 this language, Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Later we read of another palace, another location. In verse 15 it says, With joy and gladness they are led along. In this pronoun they refers to the companions or the wedding party. It is the queen and those that attend her that are led along into this second palace. They enter the palace of the king. We have two settings or places, thus in the picture here, and the poetic imagery, two palatial settings. The first could refer to a place of worship and assembly. There are palaces that ring with stringed instruments that offer praise to the king on account of the preeminent worthiness of this occasion. And although this place is certainly not palatial as far as our little church here is concerned, I would submit to you, nevertheless, what takes place when two or three of the believers are gathered to worship the Lord is indeed a royal setting. We celebrate and we take refuge in, we take glory in, and we set our mind, attention, and affections upon the union bond of marital covenant that is pictured in marriage that we have with our bridegroom Christ every time we assemble and gather. Thus, when God's people come together to join in song and worship, our meeting is transformed, spiritually speaking, into something like an ivory palace where stringed instruments and our voices join together to make glad or to in gladness on account of this worthy occasion. But this provisional palace, if you will, the assembly of God's people in the interim right now, speaks of a time where we will ultimately find a glorious residence in heaven and then one day in the new heavens and the new earth. And perhaps this second palatial setting refers to that consummate residence in verse 15. With joy and gladness, again, this celebration and worship is the context of the heart of those gathered. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In the picture of Psalm 45, this is the consummation. This is the time when the queen takes residence with the king and they arrive and the home is established. Two have become one. There's been a leaving and cleaving and a family has been established. And the ground and basis for the generational success, succession of children is there realized. 
And so in our experience, spiritually speaking, we look forward to, as we'll mention later in this message, the marriage supper of the Lamb and our own palatial residing. Mansions are described as our inheritance and glory alongside the palace of our great king. And we are the bridal party. And we are the bride, as it were, that gathers to celebrate the glorious union one day when we enter the palace of perfect communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is purchased in our covenant with Him on the price of His blood one day in glory. The preeminent worthiness of this covenantal occasion employs the visual and the imagery and what of marriage and applies it to greater redemptive themes. Finally, as I mentioned, there is a wedding feast here in view, and we'd said before that this song would likely have been sung and incorporated into a marriage ceremony through the ages and ancient times especially when there was a royal wedding. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 19, and let's touch on this section that I just mentioned. This is the royal wedding of all royal weddings in Revelation 19. It is the wedding feast of the ages. And as we chart through Scripture the picture of marriage, we see that it is ordained from the very beginning to speak the language of of covenant through the relationship of love one to another that speaks of a greater relationship still. And so as we chart through Scripture this picture, we find this meaning of marriage, this chief end of marriage, if you will, ultimately and climatically declared in Revelation 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The preeminent worthiness of this covenantal occasion, the picture of marriage, the chief end of marriage, finds its ultimate meaning, I submit to you, and that prophetic and revelatory picture, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast of all ages, the marital feast, wedding feast, and celebration of all ages that you and I, as the bride of Christ, look forward to in our not-too-distant future. Praise the Lord. Let us consider this morning, point number two, the celebrated exploits of Christ the Groom. We've considered the singular wedding song of the Psalter, what Psalm 45 commemorates by way of the preeminent worthiness of this occasion. Now let's consider the celebrated exploits of Christ the Groom. Read with me again in Psalm 45, verses 3 through 5. It says, gird your, uh, your sword on your thigh. And this is a call for the groom, the bridegroom, to demonstrate his glory, to reveal and to unfold for the appreciation of those who witness his character and his acclaim. This is an appeal to him to reveal his great exploits. It says, 
Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. In this marriage ode, in this wedding song, there is a celebration of the exploits of Christ the groom. Ultimately, we know again from Hebrews 1, verses 8 through 9, as well as the Messianic language in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the object, the groom in this song is referred to as God, who forever and ever is throne and rule is established. So we know from the testimony intrinsic in this psalm and also corroborated in the rest of Scripture that the celebrated groom in these pages, in this passage, is Christ. And what is celebrated about Christ? First, I invite you to consider the militant vindication of His glory. In this passage, there is a militant vindication of His character that is celebrated. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. This is, war, this is the picture of a war hero or a general, a victorious one who is armed and equipped to enter into battle, doing so with purpose and success. In verse 4, In your majesty, ride out victoriously. So the exploits and honor of the bridegroom is manifest in his victory over his enemies. And he does so for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Submit to you that our Christ Jesus, our bridegroom, is manifestly glorious in the militant vindication of his glory. Christ is pictured with swords and arrows at his ready disposal and employment against his enemies in this passage. Verse 5, your, that is Christ's, arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Remind you again, recall the imagery of the opening of the book of Revelation, where Christ himself is pictured as a valiant, conquering hero. There's a sword that proceeds from his mouth. He rides on a charger that illustrates his victorious march over his enemies in a victory, victory parade that exalts his glory over every enemy that has ever reared its ugly head throughout all history. And we who align ourselves with him, that is, his bride, we cheer him on and we join that victory celebration marching behind him as it were in that parade that celebrates and commemorates his militant exploits over his enemies. What are the enemies of Christ? We've mentioned a few of them recently in our Hebrews study. Consider Hebrews 1 and 2. We were those who were once held captivated, captive, that is, to fear of death because of the wages of sin that were the reality of our future. Thus, the fear of death was Christ's enemy. In order for his groom, for his bride, excuse me, to be redeemed, they had to be delivered from the threat of death, the curse of sin. Thus, the devil, sin, the wages of sin, the grave, the last enemy, as also 1 Corinthians 15 refers to death, all of these are conquered 
by Jesus Christ our Lord. When our great conquering bridegroom rides out with sword at, his, at the ready, he wields it against death, the grave, the enemy of our souls, the roaring ravenous lion that prowls about, seeking whom he may devour. Thus our mighty one has ridden forward, ridden forth in splendor and majesty, and ridden victoriously and declared his victory and his preeminence and his militant in his militant campaign to vanquish the enemies of our souls. And in so doing, in his conquest, he has purchased for himself a bride, redeemed us, brought us back, set us free from the shackles of our slavery to sin, and ransomed us unto relationship with himself. What other enemies does Christ, our conquering hero, the militant, glorious bridegroom, declare a victorious, declare himself victorious over? Why well, I submit to you according to Ephesians, especially chapters 5 and 6 and in the whole book, in fact, that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over every other authority and every other name. Paul repeatedly says in his vindication of the glory of Christ that Jesus Christ's name is exalted over every other name, every other insubordinate authority, any principality and power, any ruling king on this earth, who has stood in opposition and defiance and obstinance against the Lord of glory, has set himself up as an enemy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone will either repent and bow to him willingly, or his legs will be broken. And he will declare that he is, and that Christ will declare himself victorious in the destruction of every insubordinate name. Let me give you one example of an insubordinate name and an enemy of Christ that we see rearing its ugly head in our day and age. And I would submit to you this example, the federal judiciary of the United States. Since the theme of this morning's message is the chief end of marriage, let us take for a moment stock of the cultural landscape and definition of marriage that is espoused by the authorities of our day. One by one, we have seen federal courts overturn constitutional amendments that define marriage according to the Word of God in states in our country as a union exclusively between one man and one woman. Why? Because God has declared it so. Ultimately, that is the basis and meaning of marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. Many times you hear in the news that these, this federal judiciary has made itself the enemy of the people. The people have spoken, we hear. The will of the people has spoken. In states like Alabama, some 81% of the constituents there have voted to affirm that marriage is a union exclusively between one man and one woman. Let me tell you something. The definition of marriage is not established by the will of the people, nor is it established by the will of any federal judge. The definition of marriage is established immutably by the word of Christ, by the word of God. And thus, in this instance and any other, where a false authority rises like the federal judiciary and says by their fiat word, we declare marriage as something different, they have made themselves an enemy of Christ. And one way or the other, 
Whether we see it in time, in our time or not, we will one day see it as time is wrapped up at the ultimate judgment seat of Jesus Christ our Lord. Our militant Savior and Bridegroom will one day gain His vindication and glory as He tramples every last enemy, including any out-of-order authority that claims another name and another definition of righteousness than He exclusively purports and holds. The militant vindication of the glory of Christ is the celebrated exploit of Christ, is a celebrated exploit of Christ our groom in Psalm 45. Consider secondly now, more proactively if you will, the majestic cause that Christ marches forward in victory to maintain. It says in verse 4, In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Christ goes forward to conquer, but not just to destroy, but to establish. The message of the prophet, the message to the prophet, the calling of his ministry, considered Jeremiah, for instance, was to tear down, but also to build and to plant. And this vision was one that Christ himself is seen upholding in Psalm 45. In his majesty, he rides out victoriously to rout his enemies, but also in his exploits to establish something in their stead. And that is the cause of truth, the Word of God, forever etched in stone and immutably recorded and preserved. It is infallible, inerrant, and will always endure forever and ever and never fail or fade. It is the cause of truth. It is the cause of meekness, the gracious, merciful, ruling and reigning of strength that our God represents in the giving of His life for the ransom of His bride, but then the protection of His own in the vanquishing of our enemies. And it is righteousness, the rule of Christ, the standard, the law, the ethical norm of God's dictates, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, and all related themes in Scripture that will never change. These are what Christ marches forward to establish in his exploits, and these are worthy themes celebrated of our bridegroom Christ in this marriage song. Thirdly, the celebrated exploits of Christ in the, in the context here, he glorifies himself. There's an intrinsic glory that is evident in the work of Christ. It says in verse 4, after speaking to the cause of Christ to establish truth, Meekness and righteousness, it says in the second half of verse 4, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. There's a call, there's a cry, there's a desire that is here written down by the author of this psalm that the bridegroom would glorify himself, that his right hand would teach him awesome deeds. In other words, that he would show forth his exploits, that he would glorify himself in doing mighty works, showing His power, and purposing His righteous ends to the cause of the glorification of His great name. Thus, this singular song, Psalm 45, this wedding song, it commemorates the celebrated exploits of Christ the Groom. Thirdly, a third category that we see expounded 
in these words, Psalm 45 commemorates the surpassing character of Christ the groom. In verse 2 we read, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Later we read in verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, speaking of Christ, ultimately fulfillment of the object of this psalm's theme. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This psalm, as Hebrews 1 again so emphatically reiterates, this psalm can only be understood as far as it relates to Christ when we take into account at least two theological themes, the incarnation and the trinity. The surpassing character of Christ the groom is seen in, his in, in incarnational realities and in triune realities of the Godhead. They are here extolled in Psalm 45. Psalm 45 describes someone, the bridegroom, who is both a king and God. This king is pictured here in the beginning of the song in its introduction, my tongue, or I address my verses to the king, he says. Later he says, though, in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We have a king, we have clearly human elements and human relational elements in the psalm, but we also have a divinity attached to this bridegroom. Your throne, O God, and that word in the Hebrew is Elohim, is forever and ever. But more than a king and a man, or a God and a man, both extolled in the same person, we also have the uniqueness of this second person of the Trinity, also extolled in the psalm, when the author says in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So again, in the Hebrew, in the context here, verse 6, Your throne, Elohim, is forever. Therefore Elohim, your Elohim, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Putting those ideas together, we see that the individual celebrated in this psalm is man, is God, and is personally distinct from the Father in a subordinate yet, re yet relational role. This is the beauty and the intricacy and the complexity of Scripture unfolded before us, especially as the New Covenant gives us further revelation. In Psalm 45, we have the incarnation prefigured. We have the Trinity extolled. We have a man and a God in one person who is distinct from the Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit proclaimed and extolled in this wedding song. This was the documented proof that was provided the author of Hebrews in his opening seven Old Testament citations to show what God the Father spoke of God the Son in the Old Testament and thus underscored and established the supremacy of Jesus Christ to the hearers of the New Testament church when the book of Hebrews was written. But he took as his proof, among other references, Psalm 45. Why? Because this psalm 
contains the tangible and the eternal. The God-man, the second person affirmed by God the Father of the Trinity, here extolled in his incarnational and triune uh, office. And truly, it is amazing to to behold. Under this third point, again, the surpassing character of Christ the groom, let us also consider His grace and the union that His grace provides. Turn back to verse 2. Considering the character of Christ, we see His character, His beauty described as follows. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And here is another dimension of the character of Christ described in the context of His grace. Grace provides the ability, or grace is the means whereby the union of Christ with His bride is established. And that grace is lavishly evident in Christ. It pours forth from Him in His office, in His role, in His personhood, in His character, in His relationship with His church. This grace is majestic, overflowing, powerful, worthy of song and praise. It is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that indeed has saved a wretch like us. And this grace makes Christ appear to us beautiful, lovely, handsome, He is the one that is attractive to us, irresistible to us, because in our sin, He first loved us and gave Himself a ransom for us. The many who were worthless, decrepit, lost in our transgressions, totally depraved, and in a condition that no one who had that is worthy of the eyes and affections of anyone. But we were made worthy of the eyes and affection of Christ by grace alone. And it poured forth from Him. When Christ preached His message of the kingdom that we have been saturating our minds with in the book of Matthew, can can it not be said in Psalm 45 of Christ's own words in the book of Matthew that grace poured forth from his lips. Indeed it did. At every turn, at every discourse, at every moment, when the weak and the lost and the lonely and the outcast were there assembled before Christ, he welcomed them, he gathered them, he set the children in their midst. He reached out with the loving arms of grace and the loving words of truth and gathered in the elect wherever he went. And he was the conquering, lovely, gracious hero to those who were poor in spirit and receptive to those words. His word attracts His bride. It calls, it woos, it draws because He has appeared lovely in our eyes because we understand our decrepit sinfulness and we see His glorious grace evident in His suffering and death on the cross for our salvation. The surpassing character of Christ the groom is evident in His incarnation, in His triune office, in the union of grace that He has forged with His own, 
And it also is evident in this marriage song in his authoritative law and justice. Verses 6 and 7 extol the authority and the power, the rule and the sovereignty of our Lord Christ by saying your throne, again a picture of ruling and reigning and sovereign, sovereign authority, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A second picture of ruling and reigning, your scepter, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So we have these pictures of authority that are attached to the character of Christ in this psalm, a throne and a scepter. This throne and the scepter is identified with these character traits of Christ. It says, your scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, verse 6. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So there in that section, the rule and reign of Christ is seen as gloriously evident and manifold in manifold ways, but especially in this passage, in His uprightness and in His righteousness, in His rule and in His reign, in the fact that He extols truth and He hates evil and wickedness. As we march through the years through these psalms as a church, we'll eventually get to that longest uh, chapter in the Bible itself, Psalm 119. And Psalm 119, I submit to you, will bounce off the obscure understand or the uh, blind understanding of most all confessing Christians today, unless they realize the virtue and value of the law, the word, and the righteousness of Christ. Unless we learn to love the preeminently glorious aspects of Christ's character that are intrinsically connected to law and justice, there is whole sections of gloriously uh, revealed, worshipful portions of song like Psalm 19 and this portion of Psalm 45 that will be lost on us, that we will not understand. But suffice it to say, if we understand that Christ loves the things that are declared in the Holy Word of God as righteous, just, true, of good report, virtuous, the things that accord with His standards of holiness. If we understand that He loves those things, and therefore we want to unite ourselves with His affections and pray that He would give us a heart for those things as well. And secondly, along the same lines, if we understand that He is angry with the wicked, that He hates the things of the evil, of evil, and He hates those who despise His righteous truth and stand against His word and the clarity and power and holiness that it represents, we will begin to see in our heart a similar affection that the author of Psalm 45 entertained, a heart that would understand the surpassing character of Christ the groom is not just His grace that establishes union with us, but also the fact that He rules and reigns according to righteousness and justice. He vanquishes evil and He establishes truth. Praise His holy name. Fourthly, this morning, considering again in Psalm 45 what the author commemorates, 
We've mentioned his, the preeminent worthiness of the occasion, the celebrated exploits of Christ the groom, the surpassing character of Christ the groom. Now let us briefly consider the derived virtue of his bride, the church. Derived means the virtue is not intrinsic to us as people, but it is derived. We owe our virtue to the bridegroom, to Christ himself. It is a virtue that is granted, not a virtue that is merited, but a virtue that is freely given by grace alone. It is the derived virtue of his bride, the church, that is commemorated and celebrated in verses 10 through 14. Listen as our author extols this aspect of marriage and the truth therein contained. Hear, O daughter, and consider, he says in verse 10, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. The all-glorious is the princess in her chambers, with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Here we see in, the, in these images the derived virtue of Christ's bride, the church. The theme, the idea is since he is your Lord, you are beautiful, you are welcomed, you are loved, you are drawn in, you are clothed. You are a draped in raiment that is royal and fitting and beautiful. Since he is your Lord, remember this is a king marrying a queen, and this king is established, glorious in his exploits, and now the bride is privileged to be united with him, so she will now share in union with him with his exploits, with his riches, with his estate, with his wealth, with his Renown. It is because of his position and his singular prominence, his authority, his glory and fame that her identity is now lifted up and given such a glorious reflection and such a powerful union that she is now exalted next to him on his throne and joins now beside him in his glory. It says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. There is a derived virtue of Christ's bride, the church, that is an undivided loyalty. There is a leave and cleave principle that is established from the very institution of marriage in the book of Genesis that is here pictured in its spiritual uh, truth as well. Also pictured in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 39. As we've read in Matthew 10, Christ says, Whoever loves father, mother, son, and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ is declaring as the bridegroom thus in Matthew 10, as he issues this charge to his bride, he is issuing along the lines of, Psalm 45.10, a call to leave other associations and relationships and cleave to Him, and, ha and thus our relationship with Christ will become primary and the definitional reality of our identity. Hear, O daughter, and consider incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and join with your King 
and your spouse. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. In the book of Ephesians, it opens in the first three chapters establishing the reality of Christ's relationship with us. It is a picture of adoption, a calling out of the bride who is predestined before time began to be joined with the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. In the chapters that remain, we see that all other relationships find their meaning, purpose, and definition. They are established in and through our relationship with Christ. Christ is the preeminent relationship. Our relationship with Christ is one that demands an undivided loyalty. And it is this derived virtue of the bride, the singularity of our love for Christ, this leave and cleave principle that defines His church. No one who still loves his earthly spouse more than Christ can truly say that they are redeemed, that they are a Christian. No one who honestly can say after searching his own soul that my loyalty to my father or mother is greater than my loyalty to Christ or my best friend or whoever, son or daughter. No one who can say honestly upon searching their own soul that they would sooner leave Christ than leave this relationship or that relationship can honestly say they are a believer. The character of Christ's bride is one of undivided loyalty. There is a hierarchy of relationships. Christ is first. Secondly, the virtue of his bride, the church is pictured in purity. There is in the picture of this colorful raiment that the bride wears, rich imagery of the atoning work and the royal robes that God places upon his people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. These riches, again, are derived. She didn't earn this dowry for herself. The people of Tyre sought favor with her. They brought gifts. The riches of the people, the richest of the people, brought to the bride gifts. There's pictures like this throughout Scripture to show that the value of God's people is not in and of themselves, but it's a value that is derived ultimately because of the royalty that they are joined in union with, namely the riches and the glory of Christ. But these, uh, clo this clothing that she wears, it's in many colored robes that she has led to the king. And thus this picture, ultimately we see this again in Revelation 19, the different colors are pictured. There's purple in the scriptures, there's red, there's white, there's these multicolored pictures of clothing and robes, the uh, pictures and coverings in the tabernacle, the clothing of the priests. And there symbolized is multiple redemptive truths. The royalty of Christ transferred to us. Also the redemption of our sins, the washing away of the stains of our own unworthiness, and then the draped and the white linens of Christ's righteousness, and so on. But it is this purity, this raiment and favor that again are the derived virtues of his bride, the church. This purity of the bride and the bridal party, because we later read that in many, clothed, many colored robes she is led to the king, but she's not led alone, in verse 14, with her virgin companions following behind her. And here in the context is this picture of purity. This purity is on account of the king. The bride is beautiful and the bride is rich for who? Ladies, you can understand and relate. Who ought you to be beautiful for? 
Well, chiefly, primarily, your husband. That he is the one who should be the object of your beauty, primarily as far as earthly relationships are concerned. And so the picture, spiritually, is the same. We are made beautiful for Christ. The glory of Christ is the purpose of our cleansing and the benefits of our salvation. Not ourselves. We are not made beautiful and rich to promote our own convenience and to promote our own name. But our purity and our worth is on account of the King. And this is the picture of the derived virtue of His bride, the church. There is undivided loyalty. There is purity on, the, on account of the King. There is raiment and favor pictured. And all of these remind us that His bride, the church, is dependent on the bridegroom to be worthy of this marital union. Finally, this morning, the singular wedding song of the Psalter commemorates the scope and influence of sovereign history. There is a parallelism in this psalm, an emphasis repeated by refrain, and it really puts the weight on the eternal glory and the scope and the influence of the meaning of marriage and this occasion, this covenantal occasion that the author is commemorating in these words. Note in verse 2, it says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The key word there is forever. There is a note of the influence and the scope of the sovereign historical ramifications of what is in view and celebrated here that is underscored by the repeated phrase forever. Again, we see this in verse 6. It says, speaking again to the bridegroom Christ, Jesus our Lord and God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And there twice repeated this timelessness of the value or of the glories and reality of Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then finally in verse 17, it's repeated again. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the refrain that places the emphasis on the eternal. Marriage in this life for all the joys and the virtues that it represents, for all the benefits and all the blessings that it promises is a temporal arrangement. But the glorious truth here expounded in Psalm 45 is it speaks to a greater reality that has no shelf life and will endure forever. One day the picture of marriage, evidenced by many of you who are married among us here today, myself included, our marriage unions will one day give place to their fulfillment and prophetic reality at the marriage supper of the Lamb where the relationship of Christ's bride, the church, with her bridegroom, Christ, will be eternally and ultimately established with every benefit and blessing our ma- in our manifold experience in the new heavens and the new earth eternally, forever and ever. This is the scope and influence of the redemptive picture of marriage. When we realize what is connected to this institution, how dare we mess with its definition? 
We have the opportunity culturally and as a church and in our own relationships to preach to the transcendent reality of redemption itself in our marriage unions and in our upholding of the marriage of the definition and intrinsic reality that God has established immutably of marriage in and through even our law structure. And this is why it's so important that we as His people, though the world may decay and fall apart around us, that we fight for our, in our marriages our ability to preach the gospel and to reflect the truth of marriage's transcendent and eternal reality. It may be the only way that some people see the glory of the future reality of the relationship with Christ through God's ordained means of you being faithful to your own bride, to your own groom in this life. Hopefully God can use that testimony to preach to a greater reality, the sacrificial love and grace that Christ has shown His church, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Notice again that what is commemorated in this psalm is the scope and influence of sovereign history, not only the emphasis on the eternal, but also the generational perpetuity. This is a generational reality. It says in verse 16, In place of your fathers shall be your sons, you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Thus, the meaning and purpose of marriage, the value and beauty therein contained, is engineered and ordered by God to produce fruit, progeny, children, a generational testimony of its power. It is because of the union of your mother and father that you are here today. But not just that, but the union of each of their parents and so on. And thus, in this reality, we have a picture of God's scope, of the scope and influence of Jesus Christ sovereignly over history. He has intended that we stay so faithful and committed to Him and to His Word that we produce generational fruit for His glory. And not only is the reality of marriage's truth proclaimed, a multi-generational, a multi-generational thing, but it is also ordained to be multinational. Notice in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Listen to this truth. I submit to you, Psalm 45 commemorates the geopolitical, geopolitical, proliferation of the gospel the geopolitical proliferation of the gospel matthew 28 19 through 20 the commandment to the few collected their disciples is to take the word of christ and preach to the nations discipling them in everything that he has commanded and spoken indeed the whole testimony of scripture the entire counsel of god Psalm 45 celebrates this reality of the scope and influence of the meaning of God's covenantal institutions. It's not just to be experienced, not just to be experienced in your own personal life, but it is to be a multi-generational and a multinational reality. Psalm 45 commemorates God's purposes to display His glory over this earth as the waters cover the sea. The relational plan of redemption is individual, individual, yes, but it's also generational. It is spiritual. It is also tangible. 
The Bible does not recognize, I submit to you, our atomized dichotomy between the gospel as a personal relational experience and the gospel as a global transformational movement. In other words, sometimes we go to sections of Scripture like Psalm 45 and we see these moments that are intensely personal. You're the most handsome of the sons of man. Grace is poured upon your lips. And we think of our personal relationship with Christ, but then we stop there. And if we stop there, if we don't consider the dynamic implications of the gospel beyond just our personal relationship with Christ, we are handicapped in the glorious revelation of what it entails. Let us consider the personal reality of relationship with Christ, but also the fact that God has ordained that nations praise Him. Thus, we will avoid the error of saying that the gospel is one or the other. It is both. Let us not lose the corporate aspect of God's testimony through His church to all nations, tribes, and tongues on account of its personal reality. But let us continue faithful in our understanding of what Psalm 45 declares, that Jesus Christ has entered history the God-man, the bridegroom of His bride, the church, and therein has forged a union in His own blood that is eternal, multi-generational, multi-national, and will endure forever and ever. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for what Your Word has revealed to us. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that there is redemptive truth and glorious reality, Father, in everything that you have ordained from your purposes in this day, Lord Jesus, to your purposes in marriage itself. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge, and every godly marriage lived out as you intend reveals the glory of Christ and his love for his bridegroom. I pray that you would remind us, Lord, from this message today that it is your will and intent to redeem every aspect of our lives to testify unto you that the chief end of our marriages, of our life, of man himself is to glorify you and indeed to enjoy you forever. We thank you that this future is reality for us and purchased at the cost of your blood and assured and sealed to us by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. We thank you for this time that you've given us today, and we pray that we would be good stewards living out your word this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.